Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've gotten so many questions from all of you since we relaunched in February that I wanted to take some time today to answer a few of them. We've got questions today about state media, Stephen Miller, Republican fundraising, proving racial gerrymandering, anti-democracy laws, the Russians, and breaking the filibuster. But before we get started, I wanted to take a brief moment to express how grateful I am for this incredible community listening and learning right alongside us here at Politicology. It is truly an enormous privilege for me to get to come into this studio, speak into a microphone, and engage with an audience of hundreds of thousands of you who are just as passionate as we are about discovering where our politics is going, where we've come from, what role we have to play, and how interconnected all of this really is. I truly couldn't imagine doing anything else. And in this episode, we're taking your questions from our email box and social media and our DMs uh, to take a closer look at the issues you want us to address or to re-examine things from your perspective. So thank you to everyone who has written in uh, with a question or advice or just words of appreciation and encouragement. I can't tell you how much that means to us and the growth of our work and our mission. So I really hope you enjoy this brief episode as much as we enjoy hearing from you. All right, let's dive in. So this first question comes from Jennifer C., who writes, I was wondering if anyone knows what's going on with Radio Free. Is it still being operated by a Trump lackey and focusing on MAGA propaganda? So what Jennifer's referring to is Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, and other radio stations that the U.S. government created in the early days of the Cold War to share news and reporting where a free press or a free-flowing information were limited, essentially to embody journalistic principles where journalism didn't really exist and the information that most people had access to was corrupted by uh, the state or was essentially propaganda. These radio stations were funded and run covertly by the CIA until 1972 for the purpose of disseminating information from the free world where it would not otherwise be easily accessible. So they were and are prohibited by U.S. law from creating content targeted at American citizens. And they're even prohibited from broadcasting here in America for the obvious reason that Uh, This could result in state-controlled media. It can be abused as a propaganda tool if editorial control were corrupted by, say, political interests. And they were consolidated under the umbrella of what is now called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, the USAGM. It was originally called the Broadcasting Board of Governors in the 1990s. And we talked about this over the summer and into the fall because Donald Trump had installed a Bannon loyalist by the name of Michael Peck as the CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Peck was fired just hours into the Biden administration and faced complaints from over 30 whistleblowers. The agency has reinstated five of the seven dismissed employees, and separately, Peck has been accused by the District of Columbia's attorney general of funneling more than $4 million to his documentary film company through a nonprofit he runs. So the short answer, Jennifer, is no, 
The organization is not still run by a Trump lackey, although it remains to be seen just how much damage PAC had done while he was in control there. We do have a new CEO, a new acting CEO, and Biden has appointed people to run the various media organizations within the USAGM. But we recently learned that under PAC's leadership, the USAGM paid millions of dollars to law firms to try and come up with justifications for firing all of those heads of the radio stations after they had been fired. And again, the news on this front is still developing, and we'll be returning to it soon on the podcast. The next question comes from Barbara B. What is Stephen Miller up to? She wants to know. So I think this is a rather short answer, but he is doing Fox News hits, calling the Biden immigration policy cruel and inhumane because he has no sense of irony. He's also launching a new organization called America First Legal that is going to challenge Biden administration initiatives, which are at odds with Trump's priorities. So Probably the first thing you will see is a challenge to Biden's immigration policy, but watch this space. All right, this question comes from Carissa B., who writes, why is racially biased gerrymandering so difficult to prove? And the first thing I'd say, Carissa, is to listen to Drawing Democracy Part 2, Racial Gerrymandering and Voting Power, which we released on March 31st with David Becker. David's an election law expert a former DOJ attorney in the Civil Rights Division. And in it, we unpack the Voting Rights Act, specifically Section 5, which relates to a now-removed requirement for Southern states to pre-clear any changes to voting or election laws with the Department of Justice, and Section 2, which is where we get the mandate to protect minority voting rights. And the reason it is so difficult to prove racially motivated gerrymandering is because of the complexity of this law which actually requires that you consider race, specifically the ability of racial minorities to influence the outcome of elections and elect candidates of their choice in the process of drawing district boundaries. However, race cannot predominate all other considerations in drawing district boundaries. And so what this results in, in most situations, is legal challenges that hinge on whether a protected community has been packed, which means there's too many minority voters drawn into an area where they could otherwise effectively influence the outcome of more than one district, or cracked, which means essentially diluting the influence of a single community so that it cannot significantly influence the outcome of any elections. And you end up in some very complex legal challenges that take a long time to resolve, and they can be very difficult to follow. So again, if you're interested in going deeper into this subject, I would strongly recommend you go listen to that episode, because David walks us through that in great detail. Jeannie writes via Twitter, with over two-thirds of states moving to have anti-democracy laws, what can we possibly do to stand against this? Jeannie, so according to the Brennan Center, as of March 24th, legislators have introduced 361 bills with restrictive provisions in 47 states. These measures have started to be enacted. Five restrictive bills have already been signed into law. 
And at least 55 of these bills in 24 states are moving through the legislatures right now. 29 have passed uh, in at least one chamber, while another 26 have had some sort of committee action, like a hearing or an amendment or a committee vote. Most of these restrictive bills take aim at absentee voting, which everyone knows was a massive feature of the 2020 election, while nearly a quarter of them seek uh, stricter voting ID requirements. And they're looking to increase barriers to voter registration. They're looking to expand voter roll purges. They're trying to cut back on early voting. So two proposals from the federal level to protect voting access are the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We talked about this on a recent episode with Theron Johnson. The For the People Act is also known as HR1. It creates automatic voter registration across the country. It ensures that formerly incarcerated people have their voting rights restored. It expands early voting and absentee voting. It simplifies voting by mail, among many other things. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act restores one of the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013, called preclearance. That's the feature that I mentioned in the last answer. It creates a process for reviewing changes in certain types of voting laws that have a discriminatory impact, like voter ID laws or the reduction of multilingual voting materials. And it only applies to states that actually have a history of voting rights violations in the previous 25 years, uh, which is rolling or continuously moving so that states with a recent history of violations are covered. So as to what you can do, uh, number one is vote. And don't just vote in presidential or federal elections. Vote in your local and municipal elections. Every election that you are eligible to vote for, they aren't always in November. And you have to consult your local board of elections or secretary of state's website in order to find out when those elections are happening. You can also and should also contact your state legislators. There's a website called 270to-win, 270to-win.com. And you can put in your address and it will show you your federal and state representatives as well as their contact information all in one place. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes today. And I would strongly recommend that you think about what you're going to say when you call them first. You know, for example... Uh, dear so-and-so, uh, you know, I'm calling as your constituent and stakeholder in the redistricting process, and I am carefully watching to ensure that our district lines are fairly drawn and equitably drawn to accurately represent our community, and I intend to closely follow this process to ensure my voice is heard. You can say something similar about the restrictive voting laws, but make it clear to these representatives that you're watching and that you know what they're trying to do if they're Republicans. And if they're Democrats, note that you expect them to stand strong against Republican interests to restrict uh, access to voting. And finally, you can contact your members of Congress and encourage them to pass the national reforms I mentioned to protect voting rights. Kevin T. writes via email, I was wondering why the Russians view attacking Democrats as bad for the U.S. versus attacking Republicans as bad for the U.S. So, Kevin, we've had a number of national security experts on the podcast to talk about this topic explicitly. Most recently, March 24th, we had John Cipher and Molly McHugh on to talk about Russia 
specifically. And on September 23rd, there's an episode called Agents of Chaos, Russian Election Interference in 2016 and Now. I think a fair summarization of everything we've learned along these lines would be that Russia's interests have little, if anything, to do with the underlying ideologies of American conservatism or progressivism, but everything to do with sowing chaos as deeply as they can. And they do that by inflaming and exacerbating existing divisions within American society and amplifying the most toxic elements of our public discourse. So the extent to which Russia has a preference for Republicans or the, you know, the perception that they do, that has more to do with their preference for Donald Trump and everybody who enabled him because, in the first place, he is the ultimate chaos candidate, was the ultimate chaos candidate. And he uses the same approach, the same tactics that the Russians use to divide Americans. And second, he has really shown an obsequious deference to Putin on the international stage where Biden, along with most Democrats, have really not deviated from longstanding U.S. foreign policy that regards Russia as an adversary and an international bully. So I think that's a fair summarization, but I would encourage you, if you want to go deeper, to check out those two episodes I mentioned, um, March 24th and September 3rd. You can find them on the podcast feed. Elizabeth F. writes, assuming that the filibuster remains in effect, do you think that it would be possible for Biden to do immigration reform through the reconciliation process? And if the parliamentarian says no, to remove that person and pass the reform anyway? First of all, for our listeners who have heard reconciliation before in the news media but don't understand what it means, essentially... It is the process the Senate uses to approve a budget, and it only requires 50 votes. But there's this rule in the Senate called the Byrd Rule, named after Robert Byrd, that excludes non-budgetary provisions from using this Senate reconciliation process, which means it's basically impossible to get anything done in the Senate without breaking the filibuster unless it has to do with the budget. So what Elizabeth is asking here is whether or not Biden can get an immigration reform bill through the Senate by essentially using a budget process to do it, which would essentially eliminate their need to break the filibuster, except it's up in the air as to whether any immigration provisions could get into a bill like this because you need a parliamentarian to approve it. In March, the House actually passed two immigration measures to provide a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, but neither of them is likely to get 60 votes in the Senate. Speaker Pelosi, Senator Dick Durbin, Alex Padilla, and Bob Menendez are all reportedly open to trying, but it is very uncertain at this point. It's worth noting that in 2001, Republicans did actually dismiss the Senate parliamentarian and replace him because they didn't like what he considered budgetary versus non-budgetary. So there is precedent for that, and it is a way around breaking the filibuster. And that, to me, seems like a good solution to this standstill. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. And if you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. 
And if you enjoy the show and you find this work meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. This really does help new people find the show because it helps us rise in the rankings. And make sure you're following us on Twitter at PoliticologyPod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.